Hello and welcome to the first installment of the podcast series On Air. We are very excited to embark on this journey and we look forward to exploring the clinical applications of immune cell repertoires. In this series, we would look at how T and B cell receptors are currently used in diagnostics. We will discuss different areas where repertoires can be a great addition and the reasons why we are just not quite there yet. The podcast series is supported by the Antibody Society. Society aims to bring together everyone working with antibodies and you can find out more information about the society on the website antibodysocietyinoneword.org. This podcast episode is hosted by Ulrich Starvo and by me, Niti Gupta. Um, I'm very happy to introduce our first ever guest, Nina Luning Prack from University of Pennsylvania. Hello, Nina. Hello, Niti, and hello, Ulrich. It's a great pleasure to be here today. Nina, you're in Philadelphia. If I have only half a day and I have already seen Liberty Bell, where should I go next? Oh, there's so many possibilities. Uh, well, it really depends what you like to do. If you're a frustrated uh, sports fan, then maybe there's a game that's uh, happening um, with the Philadelphia Phillies, which is our baseball team, or, or the Flyers, our hockey team, or the Eagles, our football team. Um, they are all in stages of rebuilding at the moment, and it's very frustrating for, for people who do like these teams. Uh, but maybe they will be back to their winning ways one of these days or decades um, or you could go to the art museum, which is quite nice. Um, or you could enjoy um, maybe a, a concert. Uh, Philadelphia has a, a very nice music school, um, and it also has a, a beautiful concert hall and a, and, a, and a pretty good symphony orchestra, actually. So maybe those are some possible things you could see and do in Philly. So quite a lot, apart from the always present Liberty Bell, I guess. It yeah, well, like the, Liber the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall are certainly, uh, uh, you know, staples of, of Philadelphia. Um, yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, the university where I work is called Ben Franklin's University. So it was founded by, by Ben Franklin. And there's a big uh, sculpture of him in the, in the center of the uh, you know, main square of the university. Oh, definitely worth a visit, I am sure. And speaking of, of the university, so before... We actually get into your fascination with with uh, B cells and the B cell receptor. Um, we should maybe talk a little bit about the air community because it's essentially what has brought us all three together today. Um, and well, not just because of that, but also because this podcast is the work of the diagnostics working group of the air community, which is a relatively new addition to to the diverse areas covered by the community. So. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about why was the community formed in the first place? Sure. Well, well, maybe um, if you don't mind me uh, taking a step back and, and starting with what actually is the AIR community. So the AIR community is, AIR stands for Adaptive Immune Receptor Repertoire. And um, that refers to uh, antibodies and T-cell receptor gene rearrangements. Um, and so the AIR community technically is actually a, a committee within the Antibody Society, whose mission it is to advance and promote um, the generation, analysis, uh, standardization, and sharing of high-throughput sequencing data that characterize adaptive immune receptor repertoires, also known as AIR-seq data. 
Um, it's a it's really a grassroots organization that has a variety um, of different stakeholders, including wet and dry bench scientists, computational biologists, software engineers, ethicists, and even legal experts. Um, and the air community is open to anyone who's interested in immune repertoire profiling. Um, as far as the origins, it really dates back to uh, 2015 when there was a, or maybe even earlier than that, actually. Um, there, but in 2015, there was a meeting of um, individuals who were interested in immune repertoire profiling um, in Vancouver. And the organizers of that meeting were Felix Braden, uh, Jamie Scott, and Tom Kepler. And they uh, really spearheaded the initial um, kind of organization uh, of, of the air community and got a whole bunch of us excited about joining uh, this group and working together on, um, on improving things like data standardization, uh, optimization of experiments, uh, software, and, and so on. And so um, after 2015, the, the community continued to grow, and we started to form these, these working groups, which are really, and, and you've already mentioned, Ulrich, the diagnostics working group. But these are, are um, kind of freely formed um, entities that, that, uh, that the air community periodically reviews in its, in its annual meetings. And uh, currently we have several working groups. So we have the, the Meyer um, Standards Working Group. We have the Biological Resources Working Group. Um, we have a Common Repository Working Group, a Data Representation Working Group, the Diagnostics Working Group that you mentioned. There's also the Germline Database Working Group, uh, Legal and Ethics Working Group, and Software. Um, in addition to working groups, the AIR community also has um, three subcommittees. And these are, um, these are groups that, so, so the difference between a working group and a subcommittee is that the working groups form to try to complete a specific task. And that task is, is kind of reviewed and vetted during the annual meetings of the, of the AIR community. The subcommittees are more involved with ongoing work that will extend beyond a single meeting cycle. So those are the communication subcommittee, the meeting subcommittee, and uh, the inferred allele uh, subcommittee. And then overseeing both the working groups and the subcommittees is the air executive subcommittee. And then the air executive subcommittee in turn, uh, and the air community itself actually in turn, is a committee within the antibody society. So that's a very kind of long-winded answer of um, what is the air community, how did we form, and what are the various components of the air community. So you have an interesting background because you studied molecular biology, but then you went on to obtain a PhD in immunology together with an MD. Um, where along this line did you become attracted to B-cell receptors? Oh, let's see. The obsession with B-cells started at an early age. <laughs> um, I guess I would have to say uh, probably during my PhD training, um, I worked in the laboratory of Martin Weigert, who, um, who is a B-cell guru, of course. He, um, he's, he contributed many things to um, the B-cell literature, for example, um, he was one of the first, well, was the first person to describe somatic hypermutation of immunoglobulin genes. He also, incidentally, before that, defined stop codons in, in uh, um, you know, the genetic code. He, I mean, he has way more nature papers to his name than, than I will ever have. Um, and he also um, 
showed that somatic hypermutation contributed to selection of clones. Um, and when I was in his lab, uh, we were working on the phenomenon of receptor editing. And so this is where a B cell that has an autoreactive uh, receptor can change the specificity of that receptor by undergoing further um, DNA rearrangement and, you know, convert from an autoreactive receptor to a, to a potentially non-autoreactive one and thereby survive negative selection. Um, so, yeah, I think that was where things started. And we, when we were studying um, receptor editing, it was really not receptor editing that we were intending to discover at all. Rather, we were trying to figure out how to model uh, autoimmunity in mice. Um, so the way we did that was to create a transgenic mouse um, that had an anti-DNA antibody. And um, we thought, hey, you know, <laughs> well, maybe this mouse will get lupus, right? This is the naive idea. It was like, well, so, um, you know, the, I mean, people with lupus have anti-DNA antibodies. They Anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies are, are um, you know, pathologic hallmarks. Um, of of systemic autoimmune diseases such as lupus, and so we thought maybe the mouse would come down with you know nephritis or other features of lupus, but this was this this never happened, um, and the reason it never happened was that the antibodies found a way to escape uh, through through editing. So the, these these were not your conventional transgenes; they were actually knock-ins through homologous recombination. So the the locus was available to RAG to undergo further gene rearrangement because it was knocked into the, um, to the immunoglobulin locus. And so we defined a variety of different gene rearrangement pathways, uh, primarily in the light chains of antibodies that would modify their specificity. Um, and, and that was how the mice managed to escape from having these nasty anti-DNA antibodies. They would change them. Uh, and, and from there, uh, I took a brief break from... B cell immunology did some clinical training and and um, and then wound up training in in pathology, uh, where I could again return to my uh, love of B cells since there are plenty of diseases that have uh, B cell contributions both in autoimmune disease as well as in malignancies and other um, and other difficulties. So uh, so that was a way to then try to combine some of my interests in in the more esoteric features of, of antibody gene rearrangements and the more mainstream features of, of diagnostics. And what is it about B cells that still fascinates you? Oh, I don't know whether there's just one thing. <laughs> um, so, I mean, B cells are really interesting because they are, they are quite diverse in their, um, in their types. So, you know, of course, as, as, um, as B cells develop first in the bone marrow and then later in the periphery, um, you know, in different tissues in the body, um, they adopt many different forms. And so in the bone marrow, of course, you have developing B cells. Um, you have to undergo this incredibly intricate program of gene rearrangements to generate the antigen receptor. You have to select for B cells that are, um, you know, that are not autoimmune or, or in some other way pathologic. Um, and then in the periphery, you have to expand um, selected clones of B cells to participate in immune responses. And eventually, you even have to uh, create B cells that mature into terminally differentiated antibody secreting cells or uh, plasma cells. And all these different subsets of cells are, are complicated. They work um, not by themselves, but in combination with other cells of the immune system. 
Um, the complexity of it is really quite fascinating. And, and the, um, the complexity of looking at an immune response is fascinating um, because it's not just one cell. It's a collection of cells or clones that get recruited into um, a productive response to infection. And, and that whole process um, can be, um, you know, can, can go horribly awry in diseases such as autoimmune disease or, or cancer. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's another feature um, to, to B cells that make them so fascinating to study. There, there are many different um, angles, you know, that you can look at, both from protective immune responses to maladaptive immune responses, and also just their, you know, their developmental trajectories, um, their tissue-based responses, which is really most of what our immune system is doing, right, is responding in the tissues. But we rarely look in the tissues because we often don't have access to the tissues. Um, at least in, in clinical work, we're often kind of limited to the blood or to easily accessible places. So, yeah, so I think it's, I'm sorry, it's a, not a simple answer <laughs> because there's so many opportunities for, for exciting and interesting things. It is fascinating. So you mentioned that pathology is, um, allows you to, or makes it possible for you to, to mix B cells with, with your clinical training. And you are now indeed professor of pathology and laboratory medicine. And it's not a coincidence then that you're our very first guest here on the podcast, because who else would be better to, to help us kick off this, this podcast where we try to look at repertoires and clinical application and, um, um, diagnostics and I know among you have you do work on many different things but some of the things that you work on I know is the uh, diagnosis of TNB cell malignancies uh, and also on minimal residual disease evaluation can you take us a bit through the process in in the laboratory so what happens from from a sample arriving until you you hand out a result and how do you evaluate the results at the end that's perhaps more more interesting in this case so what happens with this with the sample yeah i mean it, it's a it's a great question so let me just see if i can clarify a little bit so are you speaking specifically about a clinical sample where you're evaluating let's say a patient for the presence of a malignancy yeah that was that was my idea so so okay. a clinical sample for this Exactly. Right. So, I mean, I, I guess the first point there is it's not a sample that's in isolation. So um, when you're evaluating a patient for, for a malignant condition, you're usually um, looking at a whole series of different test results, uh, anywhere from, um, you know, a, a, a biopsy, uh, a tissue biopsy, let's say, if somebody's being evaluated for lymphoma, let's say, um, maybe radiology, CAT scan, PET CT scan, something like that. Um, And then, of course, a lot of clinical lab tests as well, for uh, both for uh, diagnostic purposes, but also for staging purposes and figuring out what kind of therapy someone will receive. Um, so, so none of these tests is sort of done in isolation. Uh, but I think getting steering the conversation a little bit more towards the air-seek side, um, why don't I walk you through what would we do with a, um, with a blood sample, let's say, where we're evaluating somebody for the presence of a clonal expansion in the blood? Um, but, but also kind of, again, take a step back that in re in quote unquote real life, um, that these are, there are multiple tests that are being run. Um, and so the, the air seek 
tests would form would be a complement to existing tests that are also uh, being performed um, primarily actually on the biopsy sample initially to characterize the the malignant clone um, and you know you can use the biopsy of the of of the, uh, of the potential malignancy to define <clears throat> define the clonal expansion. Um, so the clonal expansion. Um, what do I mean by that? So if you take a tissue sample um, and you uh, sequence antibody gene rearrangements from that tissue sample, you will obtain um, a variety of DNA sequences that correspond to antibodies. Typically, people use the heavy chain of the antibody. Um, and the reason they, they do that is the heavy chain is the most diverse part of the antibody. So they, so usually you take primers that are flanking the um, CDR3 sequence. So antibodies are made up of complementarity determining regions, or CDRs, and framework regions, or FR or FWR. Um, the primers normally the, that we would use in a clinical setting would be in framework one, which is sitting at the sort of five prime end of the variable region gene, um, and a primer in the J region. Um, so those primers would flank uh, most of the antibody V gene, including this third complementarity determining region, or CDR3. So CDR3 is made up of the V um, variable diversity and joining gene segments that come together during VDJ recombination. And that is an extremely diverse part of the antibody because you have different V genes, different D genes, different J genes. So that's combinatorial diversity. You also have junctional diversity. So even for the same V, D, and J gene, you don't get the exact same sequence in two independent rearrangements because the junctions between the recombining gene segments can vary. So you can have additions of nucleotides called N additions, or you can have deletions, um, exonucleolytic nibbling. Um, you can also have additions through the recombinase, the RAG enzymes that put the uh, rearrangements together. So you have junctional diversity as well as combinatorial diversity that contribute to this extremely diverse CDR3 sequence. So why am I rambling on about this so much? Well, so the CDR3 is very useful as kind of a fingerprint of a clone. So basically when you, when you sequence all these gene rearrangements for, for antibody heavy chains, you, you get a bunch of these CDR3 sequences, and then you make a statistical argument. You basically say, if you have a certain V, D, and J gene, and if your CDR3 sequence is, let's say, 85% similar at the amino acid level to another VDJ that's the, the same three VDJ, maybe that's part of the same clone, and it's, you know, it's also the same length and things like that. And why would you say that? Well, because it's very unlikely to get sequences that are so similar to one another and yet so diverse to be um, to be part, to, to arise independently by chance. So um, so you use this CDR3 sequence as a clonal tag. And um, and then what you do is you sequence all these antibody heavy chain gene rearrangements. You take all the CDR3 sequences and you align them uh, into the highly related sequences or clones, or sometimes these are called clonotypes because you're doing it kind of computationally. Um, whereas a clone is sort of the Greek ideal of the, you know, ground truth, like the, the clone technically, of course, is um, clonally related cells are those that came from a common progenitor. Uh, but again, in these sequencing data, we're arranging these related sequences together into clonotypes. Um, and then we're making some claims about the distributions of these clonotypes in the underlying population um, or a group of cells that we've sampled. 
So getting back to the tumor, if we take a whole bunch of cells from a tumor and the tumor has, let's say, one huge clone in it, then what you will see is an extremely dominant representation of that single CDR3 strain. And then maybe you'll see a couple other sequences, but let's say 99% of the sequence copies in your sequencing library are going to be that one clone. So, um, so again, you're re you're, you know, you amplify the rearrangements, you put them in the sequencer after you add some adapters and, you know, most people do this on an Illumina platform. Um, and again, in the clinical lab setting, mo most of us use genomic DNA because it is very uh, easy to use. It's, um, you know, single template per cell and it's parsimonious in terms of workflow, much easier to work with than RNA. And it's also uh, less subject to differences in transcript abundance and things like that. So usually we use DNA. Uh, so then you get all these sequences back and then you look for these large clonal expansions. And if you find them, uh, and we can argue about how to define them and all that, but if you find these large clonal expansions, then you have a very useful piece of information because in addition to no now knowing what the patient's clone is, um, you can track it. Um, and the reason you can track it is that you can then take other samples from the patient, um, you know, either say for instance, the blood from a, a patient um, with lymphoma to see if there are lymphoma cells circulating, or you can take blood from a patient after they've received treatment and see whether the clone has, you know, now disappeared or whether it has come back. And this type of monitoring um, is something that we do for minimal residual disease, and that's something that you can use to guide therapy. Um, I think, yeah, I think that sort of takes us through most of your question. Sorry for the long-winded answer. It's also a quite open question, I guess, uh, as I realized most of my questions are. Um, and also this next one that I have prepared for you. So, because you recently had a paper out in the journal eLife, uh, on biological standards for ASIC. And can you maybe frame this paper for us in the context of, of um, diagnostics or any clinical setting? Uh, yeah, so the, the paper in eLife was, uh, I, I do want to give credit, um, you know, especially to the biological resources working group um, of the air community, uh, who were the, the primary movers and shakers to, to create that paper. Um, and I think, um, you know, there were, and I'm, I'm actually just pulling it up on my desktop here just to, to look at it real quick. So just so that people know, it's the, the paper, first author is Johannes Trück, um, and the paper is called Biological Controls for Standardization and Interpretation of Adaptive Immune Receptor Repertoire Profiling. So the aim of the paper was to try to sketch out, um, you know, what kind of controls currently exist uh, for um, performing air-seq experiments, um, but also trying to define what are the needs for, you know, so, so we have certain controls that, that, that exist, but there's a lot of controls that don't currently exist. And so what would be the ideal controls that one would like to have um, uh, for, for air-seq experiments? And so, um, you know, just in general, in a general sense, um, controls have a lot of different uses um you know so you uh some of the things that you you might be interested in controlling in a in an air seek experiment are um you know how how sensitive is the assay so um and so a kind of control that you might use for that is to to do a spike in 
or a titration experiment where you take a known sequence and you dilute it serially into a polyclonal sequence of, of um, rearrangements or polyclonal series of rearrangements. But um, you might also want to know things about uh, amplification bias. Um, so, uh, you know, are the, are the rearrangement frequencies that you are looking at in a repertoire um, really what you see in the underlying population? Or are they a consequence of the way in which you've retrieved the sequences somehow, either you know, in, in how you've amplified them, um, or in other ways, how you've recovered the different cell types? Maybe one cell type um, is is more easily recovered than another one. So there are these sorts of reasons for disconnect between you know reality and, and what you what you obtain. Um, there's fidelity in sequencing, which is another potential issue. Um, you know, so different methods have different error rates associated with them. So for example, with a DNA based method, um, you know, you, you have kind of your initial template and that's it. You, you sort of have one shot in a way. Um, whereas if you do things from RNA, you have multiple shots on goal in a given, in a single cell, for instance, because you have several templates and you can sequence, um, you can generate cDNA from the RNA. And then you can even do this handy trick where you do molecular barcoding where at the cDNA synthesis step, you would, you would um, include you know, a, 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 an, a, an adapter or a short sequence of, of variable nucleotides um, at the cDNA synthesis step. And then every single PCR product that you amplify from the cDNA that has that same molecular barcode, you can use that to then create a consensus sequence um, of sequences that share that barcode. And that would be a very high fidelity sequencing method um, even though the sequencing method itself is, is not, um, you know, super high fidelity by, by doing this little computational trick, you can uh, create a, a much higher fidelity sequence. And that, that might be useful for certain applications. Um, there's also just things like yield of sequencing, copy number skewing. I mean, there's a lot of different um, things where you might want to have um, better controls. And um, so, so in this paper, we kind of sketch out... Um, different types of um, methods for sequencing. So we, we talk about bulk gDNA sequencing, we talk about bulk cDNA sequencing, and then also single cell cDNA se sequencing. Um, and then we review some of the different uh, controls. Um, and we also survey the community uh, for their interests and their use of different control types. Um, and it's, it's actually quite interesting um, there's a broad range of use cases for, for some of these controls. Um, and I think uh, we got quite a variety of responses in our survey. Um, and, you know, in the end, uh, you know, you look at the, at the different uses. It's, you know, you've got sequencing errors, sensitivity, specificity. Um, another one, actually, that I didn't mention was uh, contamination. Um, so detection of contamination, which... Um, which is a huge issue potentially, right, for sequencing and certainly something that in the clinical lab you want to avoid at all costs, uh, especially if you're doing MRD analysis. Um, and so there, you know, we, we worry about that and maybe try to use different barcoding primer sets and also put the diagnostic sample on different sequencing runs from the MRD sample and things like that. Um, you have issues of sample quality control. You have um, batch effects, which are also are potentially significant linearity and accuracy of clonotypes. And then um, 
and then a whole series of data processing things to consider as well. Um, so, you know, I could go on and on about any one of these, <laughs> but I, <clears throat> but I think for, for clinical applications, probably the most important are sensitivity, um, <clears throat> contamination, and to some extent, uh, batch effects, um, specificity is less of an issue if you're looking, um, you know, if, if the sequence that you're trying to find back in a patient is sufficiently unique. And so by that, I mean, if you're doing clone tracking, for example, um, what you'd, what you'd like to have is a sequence that has a reasonably long CDR3 string. Um, and ideally is not like a super common V gene, um, so that the chances of finding it back, um, in an, you know, in an unrelated cell, but then calling it part of the malignant clone so that the chance of making that error is hopefully not very high. If somebody's malignant clone is very, has a very vanilla sequence, then, um, then this method will not work well to track it. So about the sensitivity, is, is this necessary to have in each run? So a control for this, or isn't this rather something that you would um, assess and define during the setup of the entire process? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a bit of a loaded question because on the one hand, it is something that you would define during the setup. Um, but on the other hand, samples can vary in their quality and integrity, so which can totally screw up sensitivity. Right? So, so, um, so on the one hand, <clears throat> if you're routinely running this assay in peripheral blood, and if you have very stringent criteria for saying, you know, somebody's white count has to be above X and um, we need to use at least X number of nanograms in a reaction and um, <clears throat> run X number of replicates or something, then you can protect yourself maybe a little bit from um, issues of sensitivity that are, that are pre-analytical essentially, uh, where, you know, you could have very poor sensitivity if you have no cells to look at, right? <laughs> um, but if, if you have that, if you have sort of the upfront criteria for your samples well-defined, um, then, then you can, can work out some of those, uh, you know, sensitivity issues by basically running titrations and figuring out what the analytical sensitivity of your method is. Um, and, but then, you know, it's still always a little bit of an extrapolation because you don't, you usually don't know what somebody's B cell count is in their blood or in their tissue. Um, and so you're, you're still kind of making a guess and, and often these methods will report out, you know, uh, clone copies per, per total PBMC number or something like that, which is kind of ridiculous because if you have no B cells in there, then you're not really measuring much. <laughs> Right. So, That's true. Um, and, and the other challenge is, of course, in a tissue-based sample, um, it depends a lot on the quality um, of the sample, uh, you know, both in terms of the, the amount of sample, the cellularity, the, the, you know, the B-cell fraction in the sample, but also just stupid stuff like um, the, the, you know, if it's been, has it been fixed or is it, is it just frozen? We love snap frozen samples much more than fixed samples because fixation will beat up the DNA. Um, and then also the length of time that it sits in fixative matters. So if you're doing a study where you're looking at archived samples and they've been in fixative for many years, that's, that's a bummer uh, <laughs> because then your DNA quality will be a lot less good. Uh, and then you may have to actually modify your method to amplify shorter sequences. So, you know, our traditional assays use framework one and JH. Um, but for, 
really old, poorly preserved samples, we might need to use framework three uh, and JH. And so those shorter amplicons will, uh, again, if you're looking for sufficiently long CDR3 sequence, that, that can work. Um, but if you're looking kind of more broadly at the repertoire and trying to accurately collapse clones, that can sometimes be tricky, especially with B cell sequences, as you know, because they undergo somatic mutation. And so then the V-gene identification, when you're looking at very short reads, can be very tricky, um, uh, you know, because of the mutations in the V-gene. And there are a lot of different V-genes that might be similar in their distance from sort of the nearest corresponding germline V-gene. So because of the these differences in sample quality, it's necessary to run a sensitivity control in each in each assay. I, there would be yeah. I mean, I think again, it, it, yeah, a lot of these things don't have a it, so sensitivity controls are tricky. Um, some some assays use um, like inline controls too as kind of calibrators for the sample quality, but that's also fraught with peril if you have a really poor quality sample because then you're um, your inline control will dominate your PCR and compromise any yield that you get of, of amplicons from the patient and things like that. So in general, we actually try to avoid using an inline control, but we definitely have a batch control for the run. And we've definitely done titrations, you know, of the assay to sort of measure its analytical performance. And then there's a lot of caveating that goes on in, in reporting the results, saying things like, you know, this was a limited sample or what have you. I also assume eventually the sample quality is just so poor that you can't really extract any information from it at all, no matter what you do. Yeah, I mean, one of the most dangerous types of samples are these very posse cellular tissue samples where people want to know whether there's a clonal expansion. And so there, it's um, you really have to be careful because if you only have enough sample for one replicate, you can easily get a PCR jackpot that can look like a false clonal expansion. So we normally try to run at least two replicates from everything, even when it's, you know, when you're kind of amplifying almost nothing, um, because that way you can at least see if it, if you have a reproducible expansion. Um, and what you normally get in a very posse cellular sample is you'll see you know, these sort of oligoclonal peaks, uh, because that's all the, that's all there is. Um, but then when you look in the replicates, they don't reproduce. And so, so that's kind of your, but, but again, you caveat this extensively <laughs> when, you, when you're dealing with things like that. That's good. Speaking of clones, um, one of your project is clone tracking and B-cell subset analysis in autoimmunity. What is the aim of the project, and how do you envision that patients will benefit from this? Ah, uh, well, so a subject near and dear to my heart. Um, so, you know, clonal expansions are are um, are kind of at the heart of any immune response, right? So, uh, when you have an immune response that that if the innate immune system hasn't taken care of things, um, then the adaptive immune system eventually gets called in to to help out and. Um, and undergoes these kind of cardinal features of of, um, of responding, and and one of them is is you know of course activation, um, which for for B cell response is typically you know a, a T cell dependent um, germinal center reaction, um, clonal expansion. You may have um, in the case of antibodies, you may have class switching, uh, you know from IgM to different isotypes such as IgG um, or IgA, um, IgE. Uh, 
or, and also, of course, somatic hypermutation uh, occurs, so DNA point hypermutation of um, the B gene sequences that encode the, the variable parts of the antibody. Um, so during this process of clonal expansion, um, you know, in, in, um, in healthy individuals, these clones will respond to very specifically to uh, exogenous uh, antigens that are, you know, that are ideally pathogen derived. And then when, once the pathogen clears, the immune response contracts and um, these cells for the most part go away, but you'll still have a, a population of, of memory B cells that can be called back into service um, should you re-encounter the same antigen. And that, of course, protects you from disease. In autoimmunity, um, of course, things are different and the immune responses, uh, the clonal expansions can occur potentially in response to self-antigen. Uh, but often we don't know a lot about what self-antigens are actually specifically being recognized. Um, although we do have some pretty nice serology tests for autoimmunity, you know, where there are certain targets that have been figured out. But any patient might have, you know, multiple autoantigens that their immune system recognizes. So it's, it's actually infrequent in patients with systemic autoimmune diseases, such as lupus, for you, for you to see um, just a single autoantibody specificity. There can be several. And so, um, so the question is, can we somehow monitor autoimmune responses in a way that's perhaps agnostic to autoantigens? Because we can't define what they all are anyway, right? And so one feature um, of, of autoimmune B cells uh, and of any responding B cells is this, is this aspect of clonal expansion. Um, and with AIR-seq experiments, you can monitor immune repertoires for the presence of expanded clones by looking at their copy number fraction in a sequencing library, right? So, um, and then you can track these clones using their, their CDR3 sequence fingerprints, if you will, right, over time. And so the, the, the fantasy has always been um, that, you know, can you, can you identify expanded clones in lupus patients? Can you link them to potentially pathologic B cells, either by immunophenotype or by, by antigen binding ultimately, but, but still in the end, are, can you find these expanded clones and can you correlate them temporally with disease flares? So, you know, again, the, half the battle here is finding the right set of clones in somebody, right? And so to do that, you really need a series of hooks to sort of enhance the specificity of the clones for the disease, if you will, and right. So if you can do that by by some form of antigen enrichment or immunophenotypic enrichment or temporal enrichment, you do that. Um, and, but at the end of the day, what you hope to find are a series of clones that this patient makes when they get sick, and that you can then use to track um, their disease status over time, um, and potentially see if you know, therapy A works better than therapy B based on how their clone sizes change with that therapy. Um, that's, that's one possible use. Another use might be that um, patient A may have clones that derive from B cells of a particular subset, you know, like maybe, um, maybe the tolerance checkpoint defect in, in one patient is early in B cell development and in another person it's late. Um, then if you combine immunophenotyping approaches, you know, like cell sorting with AIR-seq, you can potentially figure that out, right? Um, and then you can map that defect back and say, well, 
certain therapies might work better for an early stage B cell than a later stage B cell. Um, and if somebody has an early stage tolerance checkpoint defect, then maybe that disease is a little harder to treat because when you, you keep regenerating early stage cells in an antigen agnostic fashion. Whereas if somebody has a late tolerance checkpoint defect, maybe you have an opportunity to interfere with TB collaboration um, or even in, interfere with a specific type of antigen presentation. And that may interrupt um, a cycle of, you know, of collaboration in such a way that you could afford somebody a longer period of disease-free survival. Um, so with the advent of all of these different B-cell targeted therapies that, that actually are increasingly specific for certain types of subsets, um, the, you know, again, fantasy at this point, but still hope is that we could use AirSeq to um, optimize somebody's treatment and better phenotype their, their disease. It sounds very promising and can be a great companion diagnostic tool, but what are the large obstacles on the way for developing it as a companion tool, companion diagnostic tool? Well, maybe, maybe I mean, the largest obstacle in the case of autoimmunity is that we're not anywhere near close enough to defining these clones. And so that's certainly something that a lot of labs are working on. Um, but I think one until we have sort of a, a set of these clones in hand, if you will, or at least an approach that's robust that we could extrapolate to different patients without having each patient be a massive research project. Um, it's still right now very much in the, in the realm of research where I think we're a lot closer um, to, you know, to clinical implementation is in the realm of, of uh, well, certainly in the realm of B cell um, malignancy, but also in the realm of infectious disease. So, um, so, for example, in infectious disease, there are um, clones that have been identified that can respond to, to, to certain pathogens. Um, obvious examples with SARS-CoV-2 and actually T-cell repertoire analysis, where um, there are large efforts underway to define public clones that can, identify, you know, that can recognize components of the virus or the vaccine. And potentially this information can allow you to determine whether somebody has an adequate sort of immune status, if you will, or, you know, sufficiency of T cell response and protection um, to, to viral infection with SARS-CoV-2. Um, and so there the idea is you do, you know, a public clone analysis. You look for shared clones um, that are found in people who have been exposed to either the virus or the vaccine and are not found um, in people who have not been exposed to the virus or the vaccine. Um, and I mean, that's in its most simplest rendition. Um, and this is, this is tricky, right? But then so, so you, you basically sequence a whole bunch of T cell receptors from the blood and you ask, you know, how many public clones are there? Um, and if that number comes up, exceeds a certain threshold, you say, okay, we're good. <laughs> um, so so that's, that's actually being done. Um, now, now the, the threshold, of course, the devil's in the details. Um, what is a protective threshold? Well, we don't really know that yet. Um, for T cells, I mean, it, the, most of the really good data for protection are in with antibody responses where we do have some idea that the, you know, the level of antibody that correlates with a certain virus neutralization titer, for instance, and that that in turn correlates with immune protection. We, we're starting to have an idea about 
what that might be for SARS-CoV-2. Um, the T-cell piece of it is still much less clear at this point. But again, for AirSeq, the, that type of assay um, already exists. And there's, there's a company called Adaptive Biotechnologies that has a, an assay called T-Detect um, you know, for COVID uh, that they have rolled out for, for this purpose. So the largest obstacle is uh, to identify the um, never mind. I think well, we'll, I mean, we'll so cut I think this out. The largest obstacle is is you know with these with these public clones. Um, I think it's it is very tricky uh, for several reasons. So. You can imagine that such an assay would have reasons for being falsely positive or falsely negative, right? So um, in terms of false positivity, there are certainly, um, you know, certain HLA types where immune responses to the virus are likely to be more robust and where it also computationally we may have a much a bigger library of public clones that has been established. So if you sequence somebody very deeply, even a naive individual, you may by dumb luck um, run into some of these clones and the question then becomes, at what level, you know, at what proportion do those clones need to be present for that to be a quote-unquote positive result? Um, on the negative side, it's, it's even worse, because on the negative side, you could have somebody who has very few T-cells, would be a trivial reason why the, the test could be negative, right? And if they have very few T-cells, um, you may not have sampled enough rearrangements to get a good sense of whether or not they have the public clones. Um, but, you know, and, and they may well have them, but you haven't sampled them. On the other hand, if they're T-cell immunodeficient, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe they're still at risk anyway, <laughs> you know. Um, but the other piece to it is that a lot of people, um, you know, actually most of the immune response that you look at in SARS-CoV-2 to, you know, to the virus, for example, is private. It's not public, actually. So this test, while relying on, you know, these public clones, um, doesn't necessarily give you good insight into what an individual's response is, especially if they're um, if they're a little bit unusual. So, if somebody has an unusual HLA type, um, where their T cell, the, the the public clones um, that are associated with responding to the virus for that HLA type have not been uh, well represented in the database, then that's another reason you could get kind of a false negative um, result. Um, so it's it's a I think it's still early days with this, and it's going to take some some tweaking for sure. And in the end, we still don't know, uh, at least for the SARS-CoV-2 testing, how useful it will be, right? Because we we're still trying to figure out if you have a nice, you know, T cell response, does that does that protect you well enough from infection? Um, there are some pretty nice data coming out that suggest that just having a, a decent T cell response will protect you. I mean, one of the more interesting data sets from from my institution is in patients with MS, uh, multiple sclerosis, who receive B-cell depletion therapy. Um, so they have basically very low levels of circulating and even probably pretty low levels of tissue-based B-cells because they're under this chronic B-cell immunosuppression. And yet their T-cell responses to SARS-CoV-2 um, in individuals who've been vaccinated are robust. So... Yay, <laughs> you know, and the and the, the epidemiologic data uh, in MS um, would would suggest that you know you're not seeing massive increases increased rates of infection in that population, but that's you know with epidemiologic data you have the uh, 
it's a little bit tricky to interpret that, right? Because people who have a condition like MS also are more likely to be super careful uh, in a pandemic. So, you know, how, how do we figure that out in the end? Um, it's going to take some time. Taking figuring out as a keyword for the next question. So if we zoom out a bit um, and look at things in a much broader perspective, um, um, which areas of, of diseases or other things do you think can benefit from ASEC analysis? So in near or also, if we're thinking out loud, in, in uh, far the future? Uh, well, I think, so if we kind of put them in order of, of current to more remote, I would say um, for current testing, definitely uh, hematologic malignancy. It already exists. It's already being done. And for hematologic malignancy, you have um, diagnosis of the initial, you know, identification of the clonal expansion, but you also have tracking of the clone with time. Um, and then also as part of identification of the clone, uh, for some of the diseases like chronic lymphocytic leukemia, uh, the measurement of somatic hypermutation in the clone is actually something that's a, a prognostic feature. So, um, for example, again, in CLL, patients who have mutated um, antibody heavy chains in their clone uh, tend to, to have a, a better outcome than people who have unmutated um, antibody genes. Um, so, so those um, elements of, of AIR-seq are already being used at, um, in the clinical arena and I think will continue to be used um, for both, you know, diagnosis and um, diagnosis, prognosis, and, and disease tracking. The second area, which is sort of current but not yet there, is um, in the analysis of um, infectious disease responses, such as the immune status of T cells um, for SARS-CoV-2. And I think there, that could be expanded to lots of different um, diseases and different antigen systems and vaccine responses. Um, so that that is pretty wide open, I would say, at this point. And one of the really interesting aspects of that is that the uh, the thing that will really make that explode <laughs> is the proliferation of data and data sharing uh, of the type that the air community is so fond of, you know, both standardizing but also um, sharing across different uh, repositories and um, and. And, and standardizing the naming of the of the genes and things of that sort. So, so as these databases continue to be populated with increasingly um, dense collections from patients with different um, immune exposures, uh, and then also correlating those clones to particular antigen reactivities. So, uh, and then you know having databases like IEDB built up um, will be hugely useful for this type of endeavor because then um, your clinical test for immune status slash exposure will not be simply to COVID. It can be to lots of different um, pathogens and ultimately maybe environmental antigens and other things as well um, as these databases improve. And so then you, you take this one sample, um, uh, you know, you sequence somebody's peripheral blood mononuclear cells pretty deeply, both their their T cells and their B cells. Uh, and then you run it through a whole series of algorithms that pick out uh, known public clones for exposures to antigens X, Y, and Z. Um, and then you have kind of an immune profile um, of, of exposures um, and of levels of, of, of responding clones or potentially responding clones. So I think that type of analysis um, 
is, you know, the, it's coming. What's currently, what will feed into it and what is essential for making it work will be the, you know, expansion of these databases. Um, so that's on the infectious disease slash maybe even environmental antigen exposure piece. And then autoimmunity, the part that, is, of course, is nearest and dearest to my heart, I think will be probably the toughest nut to crack <laughs> um, just because of the dysregulation in the immune system that you you start out with. And, um, and again, the databases are going to be very tricky because um, what you one of the unique, maybe not unique, maybe that's the wrong word, but one of the problems with autoimmunity is... Um, is, is really the dysregulation of the response and the potential for multi-reactivity of the response. So unlike your traditional um, good response to, you know, a, a pathogen where you have a T-cell dependent B-cell response and a germinal center reaction and a lot of selection going into that event um, and fine-tuning of specificity in, a, in an autoimmune response, you may have uh, more features of an extrafollicular response, um, potentially less dependence on T cell help, and also less censoring of um, autoreactive specificity. With the result that you get, um, not just autoreactivity but multireactivity, and multireactivity creates a huge headache for public clone analysis, right? Because how do you link those things then to particular specificities? So there are people who are working on this and trying to create you know, databases of, of multi-reactive clones as well and, and to try to predict features of antibody structures that, um, that would lend themselves to multi-reactivity, such as, you know, use of, of certain kinds of charged residues like arginines and lysines, maybe alternating with you know, negatively charged residues and, and things of that sort. Um, but it's still super early days and it's complicated. <laughs> so, um, but I, I, my big... My big um, sort of beacon for the future, I think, on the antigen exposure side, as we get better databases, that's going to be so interesting, right? That we're going to be able to do these lab tests where we say, oh, yeah, you've seen these 20 things and you have adequate levels for, for 18 of them, but maybe you need a booster for, for these other two. Yeah. It sounds like a very nice future for, for ASIC, for sure. Um, and with these ideas and thoughts for the future, we are actually at the end of this very first episode of uh, On Air, the podcast of the Air community with a special focus on clinical use of adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. And if you have any comments or questions, you can drop us a line or tweet using the hashtag On Air with um, two R's. Thank you for talking with us, Nina. Thank you for having me. It was a, a real pleasure. Uh, the next episode will be available in one month's time when Ulrich and I will discuss TCRs and cancer with Lindsay Cowell from University of Texas Southwestern. Thank you for listening. <laughs>